Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, we are in the book of Ephesians and we're studying through and reading this great book together as a church. And as I was studying it this week, I thought, man, we are going through it so quickly that we are going to get done through this book in a couple of weeks. We just take it a chapter at a time. And, uh, you know, as an expository preacher, what that means is if you're here with us for the first time, we go bit by bit and verse by verse through the Bible. I was thinking, you know, if we get done with the book of Ephesians too quickly, then what, you know, I won't be able to get back to the book of Ephesians again in the next 10 years. You'll, you'll want me to preach on other things. And so we'll miss out on the beautiful truth that is contained within this book. And we won't be able to marvel at some of the great nuggets of theological truth that are found within the book of Ephesians. So, so what I'm going to do is, if, with, with your permission, if this is okay, we're going to slow down and we're just going to take it a bit more easy and we're going to just take it paragraph by paragraph and bit by bit. And so we probably won't, you know, it would probably take us through to Christmas and even into the new year as we look at this fantastic book, this book of Ephesians. And so that's what we're going to do. I guess you've got no say in it. That's what I'm going to do as I, as I teach this book to you. But today we've come to uh, chapter three and the title of the paragraph in my Bible is The Mystery of the Gospel Revealed. This is such an amazing passage, amazing passage, which I'm so grateful for, and I, I think by the end, you will be grateful for as well. So let's get straight into it. Look down in your Bibles in verse 1. Paul says, for this reason. Now, he mentions, therefore, all of the things that he's been saying so far in the book of Ephesians. And Chapter 1, he spoke about the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. He prayed for the Ephesian church that they might be filled with hope and they might know their riches that they have in Christ and they might know the power of the resurrection. And then in chapter 2, he spoke about this amazing thing that God has done in saving us. It was a miracle. We were dead. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were under judgment. We were, we were under the, the forces of darkness and God stepped in and he made us alive together with Christ and he saved us by grace. And then in verses 11 to verse 22, he speaks about how Christ has brought about peace in the church. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But Paul says, for this reason, and now what Paul is going to do, whenever Paul, I love Paul, Whenever he reflects on gospel realities, he's not very far away from praying. He gets on his knees and he starts to pray. And he's going to get to prayer. In verse 14, he will pick up this idea and he will get to prayer again. But before he does that, he's overcome when he thinks about the beauty of the church. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now, this is the first time in the letter that we discover where Paul is. Paul is actually writing this letter from a Roman prison. But notice, ironically, he doesn't call himself a prisoner, a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of the emperor. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, the word Christ is not Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. It's not like 
Jesus' parents were Mr. and Mrs. Christ. That's not Jesus' last name. Rather, the word Christ is a technical word in Greek. It means anointed one. It means Messiah. It means the true king who is promised from the Old Testament. Paul sees himself as a prisoner of the true king of King Jesus. He might be in a Roman prison, but he's a prisoner of the true king, King Jesus. See, when you come to faith in Jesus, you give up your rights. He becomes Lord. He becomes Lord of your life. And everything that comes your way, you embrace because he is Lord and you are his servant. And so even though Paul is in prison and he's in prison in Rome and he's in chains in Rome, he sees himself as a prisoner of the true king, of the Messiah, Jesus. And why is he in prison? He says, well, he's in prison on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, that word Gentiles, I think, needs a little bit of explanation. Uh, we, uh, you know, the Gentiles, the, the way that the Bible describes people is you have the Jewish people who are descendants, who are literal descendants from Abraham. That's the Jewish people. And then you have the Gentiles, everybody else. So, for example, my family, uh, my great-grandparents, they came out from Sweden. Yeah, yeah, I'm from Sweden. <laughs> you can tell by my, blue, my blonde hair and my blue eyes, you know, that I'm from Sweden. And on the other side, my, uh, my family came from Russia, Das Videnye. So, like, that's where I came from. And so I'm a Gentile. If you're from China here today, you're a Gentile. If you're from Africa, you're a Gentile. If you're from England, I hate to tell you this, you're a Gentile. There are only two categories in the Bible, Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles. And Paul says that I'm in prison on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, when he says this, it's not like he's blaming them for his imprisonment. It's not like he's going, you're the reason. You're why I'm here. It's not like he's blaming the Gentiles for his imprisonment. But rather, what he's going to do in verses 2 to verse 6 is he's going to say, the reason why I'm in prison is because of my conviction that I have about the gospel. And then from verses 7 to verse 13, it's because of my calling that I have in the gospel. My conviction about the gospel and my calling, about my calling for the gospel. So let's look at his conviction about the gospel, he says in verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, the word stewardship means to manage something for someone else. For example, if you had an investment property and you, I was the steward of that investment property, I would be managing that investment property for you. I'd be collecting your rents and looking after that investment property for you. And Paul says... I've been, I've been given a stewardship, an administration of God's grace. God is infinitely gracious and he's been pouring out his grace in the world. But I've been given an administration of God's grace on behalf of you, the Gentiles. Now he goes on to describe what this is. Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. This mystery was revealed to me from God. I a mystery was revealed to me. Now, when we think of the word mystery, what do you typically think of? 
When I think, think, think of mysteries, I think of like Agatha Christie novels. Or I don't know if you do this, but I'll do this, is on YouTube there are these lists that you can see, like um, the top 10 unsolved mysteries in the world. And like one of them might be the Bermuda Triangle and how, you know, in the Bermuda Triangle all of these ships go missing, maybe because of aliens or something else or different dimensions or something like that. There's many theories, but that's a mystery. Well, when Paul uses the word mystery, what he's speaking about is he's speaking about something in the Old Testament that God kept secret to himself, but now is openly known. Now everyone knows this mystery that in the Old Testament was not revealed, but now through the Messiah and through the gospel is made known openly. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of the Messiah, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. It was not made known in the Old Testament. God keep it, kept it secret to himself. But now it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, what is this amazing mystery that only God knew in the Old Testament, but now has been made known through the holy apostles and prophets and through the gospel? Verse 6, look in verse 6. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Messiah Jesus through the gospel. And everyone, as they read that, would have fallen off their seats. This is unbelievable, unbelievable stuff. The Gentiles are fellow inheritors of the kingdom of God. They are members of the same body of Christ. They are partakers of the covenant promises that God made through Messiah Jesus, through the gospel. You see, if you were reading the Old Testament, you would have got the idea in the Old Testament that God does have a heart for the nations. Because God came to Abraham and he said, I'm going to make your name great. Do you remember what he said? I'm going to make you into a great nation. And he said, through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless who? All the families of the world. God redeemed Israel out of Egypt. And he said, I'm going to make you a light unto who? Unto the, unto the nations. You are going to be my light unto the nations. But as you read the Old Testament, you would have maybe got this idea that maybe the way it was going to happen was that Jesus, the Messiah, would come. He would kick out the Romans, establish his kingdom. And maybe the way it would happen is that everyone would come into Israel and become part of Israel. But notice, this is not the mystery. The mystery that is revealed is that now through Messiah Jesus, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and our fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Messiah Jesus through the gospel. That now, Paul says, his conviction is that now God has opened up the way through Jesus for people from all nations to come to him and you don't have to become Jewish. You just have to believe in Messiah Jesus. This is amazing. This is amazing. Like, now, the reason it's not so amazing to us is because we don't understand the, his, 
the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles that were in the first century. You see, um, the Jews, um, they were made to be God's people. They were, they were given God's covenant promises. They were given God's law. And it wasn't for themselves. God didn't elect them just as he doesn't actually choose us for ourselves, but he actually chose them for a purpose so they'd be a light to the nations. But what they did in their pride and self-righteousness is they took the law and they took the identity markers of the law, circumcision, and in their self-righteousness, they looked down their nose at all the other nations and said, like, look at us, we are God's people as opposed to all of you other Gentiles. In verse 11, he says that they would call people the uncircumcised ones, the unclean ones. We Jews, we are the clean ones. You are the unclean ones. In fact, William Barclay, in his commentary, he says, a common prayer of a Jewish man in the first century was this, God, I thank you that you have made me not a slave, not a woman, and not a Gentile. Because, you know, I, I thank you that I'm Jewish. And, and many of the writers around this time, they basically saw, why did God create Gentiles? They said, well, God created Gentiles as fuel for the fires of hell. That's how they saw the Gentiles in their pride. So there was a lot of hostility from Jews to Gentiles. But just in case we think that the Gentiles get off scot-free, there was a lot of hostility from the Gentiles to the Jews. I mean, the Greeks, they were very proud of their culture and their philosophy. The Romans were very proud of their, of, their, of their war machine and their government. And so they saw the Jews as just this little group of people in the armpit of the empire. And so there was this hostility between Jews and Gentiles. But what Paul says in chapter 2 in verses 11 to verses 22 is that through Christ, the hostility has ended. Because guess what? At the cross, there is no reason for human boasting at all. We're all in the same boat. We're all under judgment. And it's only through Jesus that we are made right with God. And so he says that now in Christ, the law has been abolished. And through Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down. Now, when he talks about the dividing wall of hostility, he's speaking about in the temple. You see, in the temple in Jerusalem, there was the court of the Gentiles, and then there was the court of the Jews. And you couldn't, if you were a Gentile, go into the court of the, Gent of the Jews because there was this wall that was there, and there was this message written in all different languages warning you from going into the court of the Jews. But what Paul says is that now in Christ, that dividing wall has been brought down so that there is free access for all people, by the Spirit, so that we can know God. We are fellow citizens. We are fellow members of God's family. We are the temple that's being built brick by brick into a dwelling place for God. And so do you see the beauty of this mystery, brothers and sisters? This was the conviction that Paul had. The conviction that the church is not just for one people group, but it's for all people. It's a multi-ethnic identity of all people who believe in Messiah Jesus. And for the Jews, this was a hard pill to swallow, which is why everywhere that Paul went, when he went around preaching the gospel of grace, all you need is Jesus, there would come in after him these Jews who would say, yeah, we know Paul has told you that you need Jesus, but you also need to become Jewish. 
If you're really going to be a, a part of God's people, then you need to be circumcised and you need to keep the law. And Paul wrote many of his letters in order to instruct against this, against that sort of teaching, against the Judaizers. And in fact, the Ephesians would have known the backstory. They would have known the reason why Paul was in prison was because when he came to Jerusalem at the end after he went on three missionary journeys, he came into Jerusalem and he came to the elders in Jerusalem and to James, the brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he told them about all that God had done through him to the Gentiles. He told them all about his missionary journeys. And they praised God. But then James said, he said, well, brother, that's great what you've done among the Gentiles. But we have thousands of Jews who have believed in Messiah Jesus. And they are zealous for the Torah. And they have been told that you don't teach, you, you teach people that they don't have to be circumcised. So would you just be Jewish while you're around us? Would you just play the party line and be Jewish? And so Paul, he submitted to a rite of purification and then he went into the temple and Jews from Athens stirred up trouble against him and brought false accusations against him. And he eventually went to prison because of that. He was in prison because of his conviction about the gospel. That the gospel, you don't have to be Jewish in order to be a Christian. You just have to believe in Jesus. This is the mystery that's revealed. The mystery is that now Gentiles get in by pure faith in Christ. Aren't you so glad for the Apostle Paul? Standing up for that conviction of the gospel. The gospel is purely grace. It's not grace and law. It's pure grace. Trusting in Jesus, the Messiah. That was Paul's conviction, and that's why he went to prison, for his conviction about the gospel. Now, how does that apply to us today? Well, let me tell you something. I think it should deeply humble us. Deeply humble us. And now let me tell you how. Because what tends to happen is we all tend to think that we have a corner on the truth and that our little expression of Christianity is the most biblical expression of Christianity in the world. Let me show you a picture. Look at this picture up here. This is a picture painted by Leonardo da Vinci. It's called Madonna with Child. It's supposed to be a picture of Jesus and his mother Mary. Now, what is one thing that you observe about this picture that's glaringly obvious to you? She's European and Jesus is white. Historically, this is inaccurate. Jesus was a Jew. He wouldn't have looked like that. And so Leonardo da Vinci is painting Jesus and Mary according to his cultural lens. Now, we don't tend to do that, do we? We don't do that. Well, I remember the very first kid's Bible that I got in Sunday school. It had pictures like this in it. Jesus as a white man. And what we can tend to do is we can tend to think that Jesus and the church is just Western. It's just that we've got the corner on truth. And let me tell you something. The church is much bigger than what you think. It is made up of people from every tribe and nation and tongue who are worshipping King Jesus. And they've come to him by faith in him. They have recognized that they are sinners 
And they need his forgiveness and they've repented and believed in him. See, this should humble us deeply because we can often think as Westerners that we have it all together, that we have the right thing. It's so sad when you go on missions and you go to other places and you see people worshiping God in churches that look exactly like our buildings, singing hymns like us, um, dressed like us, when they should be worshiping God through their culture that God has given them, through their language, through their music. It's so sad. And so this should deeply humble us that we don't have a corner on the truth. The church is way bigger than us. The gospel is for all nations. You don't have to become a Westerner to become a Christian. You don't have to look like me. You don't have to dress like me. You don't have to to eat the food that I eat to be a Christian. All you need to do is turn and believe in Jesus to be a Christian. This is the message of the gospel. And unfortunately, human pride and our racial pride can get in the way of the gospel going forth to the nations. You know, I'm told that one of the biggest hindrances for the gospel penetrating the Muslim world is because the Muslims have equated Christianity with being Western. And they look at all the wickedness in Western culture and all the evil in Western culture and they think if that is what Christians do and think and believe, then we want nothing to do with it. You know, and one of the most beautiful things is that when you meet people from other cultures and when you mix with people from other cultures, you're able to step out of your own culture and often you're able to see the ways in which you have adopted subconsciously the values of your own culture. Every time, brothers and sisters, I go to Nepal and I'm among my Nepalese brothers, I realize how worldly I am and how much I've adopted Western culture's values and I just think that they're normal. You see, the gospel, the gospel is this transcultural thing. It, it, uh, now, now, we don't, now, when you become a Christian, it's not like you lose your identity, your cultural identity. I am grateful for Australia. Well, this is a Remembrance Day, right? I'm grateful. I'm an Australian. I'm a proud Australian. I sing the national anthem with my heart on my chest. I come from Queensland, for goodness sake. We Queenslanders are probably the most patriotic people in Australia. I remember growing up as a young kid in Queensland. Do you remember this, Damien? You'd have to put your hand on your heart and you say, I honour my country. I love my queen. I love my state or something like that. I can't remember, but it was something like that. (laughs) We are patriotic in Queensland. So it's not a bad thing to love the, the culture and the place that you come from. I'm grateful for that. If you come from a different culture and you're with us, it's fantastic that you embrace your culture. But let me tell you, what I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm proud to be an Australian, but what, I'm more, what more identifies me is that I'm a believer in the Messiah, Jesus is he is what my identity is based around, not my Australianness and not my Westernness and not my citizenship in this country. My citizenship is in heaven. And I'm telling you, when you come into this place, when we come into this place, it's not like we keep our other 
like cultures at the door, but, but they are secondary to our unity that we have in Christ. And what happens is that the gospel comes and it challenges the, the wickedness and evil that are in our hearts that we bring from those other cultures. And it also, we bring that diversity into this place and we become this beautiful tapestry of the gospel that God is weaving together. One of the things that people have noted as they've come into our church is how there are different people from different races and different nationalities and there's different ages and we're all together worshipping Jesus and that is how it should be because that's the administration of grace that we now live in where people from every tribe and tongue are being drawn together into this amazing thing called the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul went to prison for that conviction. And he was opposed by other Christians for that conviction. But it was his conviction. Gospel, Jesus the Messiah, is for all people. And you don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to change your culture. You do have to repent of your sin and turn to Christ. But you don't have to change your culture in order to become a Christian. So if you're here from another culture, you don't have to become Australian to become a Christian. You just have to repent and believe in Jesus and turn to him as Savior and Lord. Well, Paul then speaks about his calling in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. He didn't, he didn't make himself a minister, but God empowered him through his grace to be a minister. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Some people see this as Paul using a rhetorical device, just sort of saying, I'm the very least. But I actually think that Paul believed it. He was a persecutor of Christians and God forgave him. He was there when they put the coats at his feet for the stoning of Stephen the first martyr. You see, you might think here today that you are beyond God's forgiven, forgiveness. You're not. God's grace is big enough and can forgive you and cleanse you if you will humble yourself before him. But why was this grace given? He says, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The word unsearchable means unfathomable, in, inscrutable. They're beyond tracing out, Paul says. You see, I don't preach morality. I don't preach a certain culture. You don't have to wear, look like me and wear this sort of shirt and wear these sort of jeans in order to be a Christian. What I preach is I preach Jesus Christ. You need to do business with him. That's whom we preach. Jesus is who we preach. But also, Paul says, and this is amazing, his calling, verse 9, was to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. Remember, the mystery is that now Gentiles are fellow members and fellow uh, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus in the gospel. He says, it's to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. See, for Paul, Paul had a particular view of reality. There, was, there is this physical world, 
but there's also for Paul a spiritual world, and in that spiritual world there are angelic beings, there are forces, uh, angels and demons and Satan, and he says that in the church, as the church lives out its life unified under King Jesus, the Messiah, and as it shares this dynamic of life together, of peace, together, people from different cultures and different backgrounds coming together in the church, it actually speaks to the powers and authorities. And I think that's a reference to the demons and to the forces of wickedness. Because all the way through biblical history, you see all of the forces of the enemy seeking to destroy and corrupt and divide humanity and bring division in the world. And what he's saying, this is, this is absolutely phenomenal, is that in the church, as we come together under King Jesus, the manifold wisdom of God is declared to the forces of evil, you haven't won. God's power of reconciliation, his reconciling love is more powerful than you because God can bring different people together in love and bind them together. Have you ever thought that your membership in the church is not just for the unbelieving world? How amazing is that thought? It declares to these powers of evil, you have not won. Christ is way more powerful. God's wisdom is way more powerful. How big is your view of the church and your membership in it? Often we have this small view of the church. Paul has this vast view of the church. The church is this amazing thing within God's plan. It's demonstrating God's wisdom. That God can bring together diverse people together through his son. And they can share this radical togetherness. And Paul says, that's my calling. It's to preach Christ and it's to preach the church. Wow. And he says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Messiah Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith, our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, because what I'm suffering for you is for your glory. When we demonstrate in the church a radical togetherness, the reconciling love of God, when we forgive one another and love one another in the church, it is glorious. It is beautiful. In June 2002, a group of nine coal miners made national headlines during a 77-hour ordeal to rescue them from a flooded underground mine in western Pennsylvania. When they emerged from the mine, restaurants and petrol stations posted on the highway signs with the words, Nine alive, prayers answered. It was a time of glorious celebration for their escape from death. But there were days of even greater glory ahead when the story of what happened in the wet darkness began to emerge. When the waters began to come in on the men, they rushed for escape. But when they recognized that their path was closed, they saved the lives of others by shouting to those who were coming down on a shift change to run because of the rising water. After that heroism, heroism they, these trapped nine men began their finest hours of glory. Everything they had was to be shared. A sandwich and a soda was to be shared. 
They huddled together to share body heat. They even took turns sharing the little piece of dry space above the water. They tied themselves together to keep anyone from floating off in unconsciousness. They bound themselves to one another with their commitment that they would live or die as a group. When the outside world learned all that had happened, they said, glory. You see, each of these men was willing to give their lives for each other, regardless of the circumstances. And what we see from Paul here is that the church should have this same dynamic of radical togetherness because it demonstrates the truth of the gospel and it declares to the demonic forces that you have not won. God's love and his grace is more powerful than that. So I wonder, do you have a big view of the church? Are you involved in this radical togetherness? Are you giving your life and your resources so that people from every tribe and every tongue can come to know Christ? Because this is God's plan through the church to share his manifold wisdom and his message of reconciliation through us. I haven't done justice to this passage, I don't think. It's that glorious and that amazing. But yet, I've tried, so let's pray. It's hard to do justice, Father, to such a beautiful passage of Scripture. This mystery of the Messiah, we're all Gentiles, probably most of us here in this room, maybe a couple of us from Jewish origin, but most of us are Gentiles, and we were without God and without hope in the world. And you, Lord God, were so gracious in that in your plan, you sent Jesus, and Jesus, he completed the law on our behalf, and he opens up a way for us to know you by faith by grace and now we've entered into this body the church and Lord help us to embody the message of the gospel and be gracious and forgiving and loving to each other and even though there are differences between us natural differences that come because of our different places of origin our different cultures that we come from by your spirit empower us to love each other to overlook some of those differences, to speak the truth in love at times and demonstrate the, the radical nature of the gospel. Lord, we, we recognize that as we gather as a church, we're not just that you, Lord Jesus, are present among us here by your spirit. We recognize that there are forces at work in, even in this room we just pray, Lord, that you would do a work in us and bind us together as your people, as one, under King Jesus. Father, we do pray for the many peoples of the world who are yet to be reached. 
the nations who are yet to hear that Messiah Jesus is their Messiah. We thank you for our missionaries who are serving you in translating the Bible and spreading the gospel so that people might hear the name of Jesus and turn and believe and be included within the body of Christ. Oh, Father, use us as your people to proclaim Christ to this world and use us as a church to proclaim this mystery. Father, we worship you, we honor you, we glorify you. There's none like you, Father. Your plans and your purposes as they unfold are amazing and glorious. And thank you for revealing them to us through your word. We praise you in Jesus' name. Let's stand together.